they see science as something that was created by quote unquote white men or that it's sexist or transphobic. And so their methods really, they have nothing really to do with statistics or numbers at all. It's very much theories that have no support for them. Are we witnessing the end of gender? Is gender merely a social construct? Most Canadians would likely shake their head and roll their eyes to these kinds of questions. Of course, gender is real. Of course, men and women are different. And of course, there are only two genders. But as I learned this interview, there is an ideological cadre, not only pushing pseudoscientific claims that gender is not real, that men can be women and women can be men, but also trying to ruin the careers and livelihoods of anyone who says otherwise. Well, woke politicians and celebrities have jumped onto this bandwagon and now demand that you ignore everything you know to be true about biological sex and gender. Individuals who stand up for the truth are getting canceled on a regular basis. But what does the scientific literature say about biology, sex, gender, and those who don't fit into black and white categories? My guest today on the True North Speaker series is Dr. Deborah So. Dr. So is a journalist, columnist, author, and former biological sex researcher from Toronto. She holds a PhD from York University, and her writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, The Globe and Mail, Scientific American, Playboy Magazine, and many other publications. Dr. So is a scientist, and she takes an evidence-based approach to her research. She is known for bravely and often defiantly presenting the facts, speaking the truth, and standing up to the ideological forces by debunking the myths about sex and gender. In our conversation today, Dr. So and I discuss her new book, The End of Gender, Debunking the Myths About Sex and Identity in Our Society. And we talk about some of the biggest myths being pushed by activists. We also talk about the harsh realities for trans people that are rarely discussed, her advice for parents dealing with gender ideology in the classroom, and how we as a society need to stand up for the truth and push back against anti-scientific propaganda. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Please like this video, share it with friends and family, and leave me a comment below. Don't forget to subscribe to True North, and if you'd like to support this podcast, please visit tnc.news/donate. Well, Dr. Deborah So, thank you so much for joining the Trinor Speaker Series. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. I feel like we've been trying to coordinate this for a while, and I'm really excited that you uh, put out this book, uh, The End of Gender, so that we can sort of put a whole bunch of the myths to rest around gender ideology. I feel like it's an issue that's so so popular right now, and it's it's such a breath of fresh air to have someone just you know laying to rest all these myths. So, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thanks so much. So I, I kind of want to find out a little bit about you before we get into the book. So you're based in Toronto. Tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you ended up doing this stuff. So my background uh, is as an academic sex researcher. So in the book, I do talk about how I went from being a sex scientist to a journalist and then moving into political commentary. Um, so I really thought at the time that I was going to be a scientist pretty much till the end of my career. And uh, I noticed toward the end of my PhD that there were certain topics that were becoming increasingly seen as controversial. Even experts in the field didn't want to touch them. One issue in particular had to do with transitioning in young children, so gender transitioning. So uh, pretty much all of the mainstream news coverage at the time was saying for these children who say they're born in the wrong body, 
um, the best way forward for them would be an early transition. So usually changing their name, changing their haircut, either growing their hair long or cutting it or wearing different clothes. Um, but from a scientific perspective, all of the research literature shows that the vast majority of kids who are gender dysphoric, they are more likely to grow up to be gay in adulthood, not be transgender. And this, these feelings of dysphoria desist by puberty. So they, they tend to remit on their own. So at the time, you know, this was considered very, it, I mean, it's still considered really contentious to talk about, to discuss it. I wrote an op-ed about this because I felt very strongly that the public should hear about it, especially parents who were being basically intimidated by activists and told that this is the only way forward for their children. Otherwise, their child's going to commit suicide if they don't transition, which is not true. Um, so I wrote this op-ed. I waited about six months. I didn't know if I wanted to publish it. I asked a number of my mentors and colleagues what they thought I should do. And they, they were very supportive of me, but they told me essentially, you know, you know, you know what's going to happen. And my choice was essentially, did I want to publish it? Or, um, I mean, I knew that if I did so, I'd probably have to leave academia. So that was my choice. Um, I was very fortunate. I became a weekly columnist for playboy.com shortly thereafter. And then, uh, then I wrote this book. So here we are. And I have not looked back for one second and I don't, I don't at all. I miss the field of sex research, but I also don't, I don't think I would have lasted very long if I had ended up staying just with the, the way things have going, have been going. The climate has become even more, more politicized, more polarized. And as we see any expert, any scientist who tries to go against particular narratives, especially when it comes to gender, when it comes to trans orthodoxy, they really pay a price for doing so. Well, it's, it's interesting. So, so you grew up in Toronto, and is is that right? You're from Toronto, mm -hmm. and and so what was it initially though that made you want to go into uh, sex research and become a scientist? It's sort of a an atypical uh, career field. I, I don't know if there are a lot of of women that do that do that go into this field of research, but what 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 brought you there in the first place? As I. I mean, I, part of the goal of my career is to bring more awareness to sexology, which is the scientific study of, of sex and gender. I do want it to be seen as a legitimate science because it is. I think sex remains quite stigmatized in our society. In the book, I talk very much about how I'm sex positive. I don't think there should be any shame or guilt around sex or talking about sex. So for me, I just happened to stumble upon a placement during graduate school and uh I, I loved it. I didn't know such a thing as sex research existed, but at the time I was doing brain imaging research and that it was such a new uh, way of looking at the field. And it, I've also felt it was so relevant to so much of, of who we are as human beings and understanding our own behavior. And as I learned more about it, I realized also that it challenged so many ideas I had. So, you know, when I was, I still would consider myself very much in favor of gender equality. I've distanced myself from the label of feminist, but I used to be very much a really hardcore feminist. There are a number of things I believed very strongly that I felt were tied to being an independent, free-thinking woman that I realized were not actually based in, in science, not based in fact at all. So I think that was part of also a, a shift for me intellectually from, from feminist dogma to science and sexology. And that's probably also part of what my interest was in, in suddenly realizing all of these things I thought were true or not true. And here is a source that is actually educating me and teaching me what the truth is. But I would definitely say it's it's a, it's rare, I guess. It's more rare when you think of what people tend to do if they want to go into the science and especially, you know, being Asian. My parents at first didn't really understand what I was, <laughs> what, what I was doing, but they're very happy for me now, very supportive. So did you come from sort of a strict 
uh, background and family or were your parents pretty open-minded? Pretty open-minded. Yeah. Yeah. They've been, they've been great. I mean, I think for any parents, I mean, I I also, my, my change to journalism, any parent, I mean, not many people go in, do a PhD in science and then completely change fields when they finish. But yeah, I've been very fortunate in that way. I've also worked really hard. So I think that's part of it also to show any, everyone, you know, I think it's easy to, to um, be skeptical when people say they want to change career trajectories, but I've just, I'm very, I guess, stubborn in wanting to prove people wrong. Well, that's great. It's interesting because in in your book, you make the distinction between sex research, which is a science, and sort of gender studies or feminist studies, uh, which which are sort of more, I guess, social sciences or not really science at all. So can can you just very quickly explain the sort of difference between the two fields? Right. And and sometimes you will see people talking as though they are sexologists or they're talking about the quote unquote science of sex, but it's not. It's very much ideological. So the difference between a discipline like sexology, which is science based, it's empirically based. It's very much about the scientific method and conducting very rigorous studies. Um, ideally, when you do a scientific study, you go in with your your hypotheses, but you design your study in a way that you're going to try and get as close of an approximation to the truth as possible. And you're not going to design your study in a way to fulfill whatever you think the outcome might be. You're open to whatever you find, essentially. Whereas, and it's quantitative uh, methods that are used. So these are numbers. You know, it's very much about accuracy and precision versus fields like... It, I, I hesitate to throw any particular disciplines under the bus, but I guess I do in the book, so I might as well do it here as well. Something <laughs> like um, gender studies or uh, anything with the, the word studies in its discipline title is suspect in my mind. Because, again, not all scholars in those fields are necessarily ideological, but many of them will say they are not in favor of science. They're not in favor of the scientific method. They see science as something that was created by, quote unquote, white men or that it's sexist or transphobic. And so their methods really they have nothing really to do with statistics or numbers at all. It's very much theories that have no support for them. And oftentimes, I mean, it's completely nonsensical if you tried to read their papers and they're not really interested in any sort of rigor or debate. It's very much about, my sense is it's about whatever social change they're seeking to employ, and then they work backwards, and their so-called papers um, support those ideas, because they're more interested in whatever change their or social or political agenda they're, they're seeking to fulfill. It's not about actually getting an understanding of what reality is. So I am not in favor of those disciplines. I think if they were to be more open to whatever they were to find or if they were less, because they act as though they offer some sort of um, some sort of adequate replacement for science because they're trying to essentially be rid of scientific disciplines and say that their way is the best way forward. But it's not even close to adequate as a replacement because, again, it's completely based in nonsensical ideas that have been unproven. So that's that's my issue with that. And I would say for people who, because when studies come out, what we're seeing now is more of this ideology is coming into actual scientific studies that are published, which is very worrisome to me because 
understandably, you know, most people are busy. They don't have time to go digging and read these studies and see who are the authors and figure out is this a legitimate scientific study or not. But in the book, I do offer some pointers in terms of what to look for to determine whether a study is legitimate or if it is something that is basically biased. Yeah, it's so interesting because so, I mean, it's been a while for me since I was in university, but I studied political science and economics and you know, that they, they rely a little bit on data, but then I also took a bunch of sociology courses. And, and that was where I sort of had the, the, the kind of run in with the Marxism and, and sort of postmodernist ideology that is really rammed down your throat in a lot of social science courses. I had a lot of Marxist professors and I kind of thought, OK, this is just happening in social sciences. The, the hard sciences are safe. Like that's a place where they pursue like pure knowledge and use a scientific method. And the, the, the problem of ideology doesn't exist there. But it seems like just over the last like maybe five, 10 years, it really has creeped into the sciences where to your point, you can't, you can't really trust whether or not a study is accurate because you don't know if the authors are being ideological. In, in your book, you have a couple of examples of sort of peer reviewed papers that came out that basically got pulled because they pushed the, the, a, contra, a controversial idea, uh, you know, about whether or not like men and women have different brains and, and, and these kind of things. Do, do you worry that, that, that hard sciences and things like biology are just not going to be trustworthy, you know, in, in the next five, 10 years? I do worry about that. And I, I would go one step further and say it's beyond something like biology being seen as not trustworthy. It's just no one's going to want to do any research in these fields because they're all being taken out and the studies are being pulled and the, the individual professors are being targeted. I think the, the reason we got to this point is because, you know, being a, an academic in the sciences is extremely competitive. You know, they're working 70 plus hours a week. They don't have time to be dealing with mobs on social media or be dealing with all of this, um, political interference. I mean, and also when once you get to that point, you're very focused on your work, you're very passionate about your work, and you just want to do good science. I mean, I can't speak for everyone in the field, but that's that's my sense. And so I think there's this sense that being a good scientist will prevail. And unfortunately, that's just not how it is now. And that's not how it is culturally, where people who are completely anti-science actually do have a say in terms of what science is being produced and who gets a voice, even if they aren't an expert in the field. And we see this very much with activists who have, in some cases, absolutely no understanding of these scientific disciplines or even what the paper that was published said, and yet they have the power to have it retracted, which to me should never happen. So I think because legitimate scientists are so busy, they're preoccupied with their work, and I think in some senses, um, maybe a little bit idealistic in terms of thinking that because they're doing good work, that's really what matters. Uh, this is why we see this happening now where activism has become so entrenched and now it is actually affecting the kind of knowledge that's being produced. So so you were in academia and you, you felt like the, the culture was just pushing one way that was so far from the research and the data that you were seeing sort of in your in your own research that that, that that's sort of what prompted you to, to decide to speak out and leave academia? Have you, uh, what, what, what was sort of like the, the straw that broke the camel's back or what, what was it that pushed you over the edge to say, okay, I can't, I can't be in academia anymore. I have to go and, and speak to the public and become a journalist. I would say it was probably when that op-ed was published. I was mobbed pretty badly on social media. That was my first mobbing. 
but I have to say for anyone who's afraid of being mobbed on social media, once you survive the first one, the rest of them are, are quite literally a walk in the park, as I'm sure, sure you know. That I, And I think also because I knew what was coming, I was prepared mentally and emotionally for it. So I was able to withstand it a bit better than, uh, you know, I've seen some of my colleagues who get mobbed and they really weren't expecting it. And, and it leaves them quite shaken after. I mean, I think there are some, some legitimate psychological effects as a result of, of being attacked so viciously. I mean, just because it's online doesn't mean it's not real to some extent. But I think what, ha what I see happening is for some of us who go through that, we just become emboldened and say, you can't stop me. I'm going to keep speaking the truth. It doesn't, you're not going to, to bully me into being quiet. Whereas other people really have a bad experience and they don't, they don't want to ever engage and, and deal with that. And they go a little bit quiet after. Um, but in terms of what, I, I think that was part of the process and made me realize I survived that. And I, I felt strongly, again, there, there are certain issues within sex research that are being either misrepresented in the mainstream or that they're biased or particular ideas were, were taking hold that are unhelpful. So um, that was really my motivation. And then with the book, it was based on all the questions people have been asking me in the time that I've been writing about the science of gender and really wanting to be able to answer all their questions because the standard column is usually about a thousand words. So I'm not able to get all the nuance. Or less, yeah, sometimes they're shorter, like five, six hundred words. Or... Right, yeah. And so you're it not It doesn't give you a lot of space to really hash out all your ideas. And especially with these issues, because they are considered so controversial, I wanted to make sure that if I'm going to if I'm going to talk about this stuff, I want it to be done in a way that is both accurate to the scientific data, but also sensitive and also nuanced. So the book gave me the opportunity to do that. That's great. And so did you have pushback against I know in the book you talked about how you kind of kept it quiet that you were writing this book because you were worried that they would go after the publisher. I know that's happened to so many academics and, and journalists, too, that they have a book deal and this sort of mob that you're talking about that that the cancel culture mob finds a way to you know protest or lobby the publishing company and they get the book deal pulled so did, did, did you have any kind of pushback like that or were you able to just sort of fly under the radar i uh, yeah as i wrote in the book i was very quiet i literally told three people in my life when i signed the book deal um it was it was really difficult for me not to say because people on social media, my readers would reach out and they would say, are you okay? We haven't seen anything from you for a while. <laughs> and I really wanted to tell them what I was working on and to say, you know, get ready because I think this is going to be something that will really speak to the concerns you have. But um, I mean, there's been backlash since it came out for sure. I mean, uh, I, I could go through the things that have happened, but part of me also feels like I, I try to stay very positive and I feel very, very blessed to ha be in the position where you know, I did get to write this book and then it is going and so many people have been reading it and giving me their feedback. So maybe I'll leave it at that. But I'll definitely say that, you know, there were some appearances that I've done that have been covered in a very biased way. Um, people have called me all kinds of things like transphobic. They say my book is anti-trans, which I don't believe it is. I think anyone who actually reads the book and listens to what I say um, knows that I have I have only love for trans people. I only I have love for it anyone that I, I discuss in the book, it's not coming from a place of, of wanting of any sort of ill intent. And so I would just say for anyone watching or listening to this, just don't listen to come to your own opinion of, of me and what I have to say and of the end of gender after reading it, as opposed to what people say, because in a lot of cases, people misrepresent what I say, or um, yeah, they just 
blatantly make things up and say that I claim that I've said things that I that I would never say because I don't believe those things. Yeah, I, well, I think I mean, I've, I've been through a similar thing, obviously a very different issue, but I, I wrote a lot about immigration. My background in acting was studying like, terrorism and looking into different terrorist groups. And I started writing really publicly about immigration during the big you know, immigration crisis in, in Europe in 2015 and what was happening in Canada. And I, I got the same kind of thing. It's like just by talking about issues that are seen as sort of taboo or politically incorrect, you get labeled with the worst possible names. Like for me, it was Islamophobic or xenophobic or racist. And it's like, it's, it, it, in some ways, it's so jarring to, to have those kind of words thrown at you. I mean, I read your book and, and you know, obviously you're not transphobic. You, you care a lot about the issue, but also you're a scientist. So you're very removed and diplomatic and talking about the data. And so it's it's kind of shocking, Deborah, that people would 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 take what you're writing and, and, and use that to, to come up with this this concept that you're transphobic when, when you're clearly not. Uh, that that doesn't phase you, though. Um, I, I saw you on on Joe Rogan, which is a huge platform. Um, congratulations on that. What, what's it like going on in show? Thank you. Uh, that was so the most recent appearance that well, I believe it was August 5th. So it was the day after the book came out. That was the second time I'd been on a show. He's amazing. You know, I've I've followed him for years. I've been a fan of his for years. And it, I really appreciate that he was willing to have me on to talk about the book because he has also I don't want to speak for him, but my sense is he's also received some pushback for that. And it would have been very easy for someone like him to say, why, why take this on? Why do this to yourself? You know, he's very successful. He obviously doesn't need, he doesn't need any of this stuff, but he was still willing to get, share his platform with me. So I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. I think, you know, when people call you names, I, I would say in the beginning, definitely it was jarring for me as well to, to hear, to, because I know that some people will see that they'll say, Deborah so is a transphobe and they'll just say, okay, she must be a bad person. I'm going to not look at her work or I'm mean, if her name ever comes up, I'm just going to assume she's a hateful person. And I think you, we have to just get past that. You know, I feel that was very helpful for me to just believe that I think most people who have critical thinking skills will hopefully take the time to actually go and read my work and, and look up, is there some truth to that? And I really appreciate too with my audience because they'll tell me, my friend was saying this about you and I told them actually, no, she's not that. And you go read her work and you can see. So I, that's, I guess, the advice I would have because I think a lot of people live in fear of being called these names when they are not whatever it is they're, they're, they're afraid of being called. And as long as you know that, that's really what matters. And if people are, are so so much like sheep that they're not even going to, to, they just blindly believe what people tell them, then, you know, I, I don't think it really matters what those people think. Yeah, those aren't the people that are going to be convinced anyway. So not not good idea to spend your time on them. Although I, 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 do, I did uh, read in your book that you, uh, you like reading the comment section on... Uh, your, your articles and YouTube. I, I don't really do. I do it a little bit, but <laughs> sometimes it's just so like overwhelming or crazy what people are saying that you're kind of like, you know, it is good to get the feedback, but you, you kind of have to filter it out, especially on Twitter, because there's a lot of craziness out there. Oh, for sure. And I, I, I would say 90% of it usually is garbage. But for the 10% that is actually someone who's trying to engage in good faith, um, it has been helpful for me. And I definitely have taken that feedback into consideration when I was writing The End of Gender and also, you know, just more broadly, because I, I think it is important. The only way that I know or any of us know that we are correct or that we're making sense is to challenge ourselves and say, well, where, where are the potential holes in what I'm saying? And if people 
I, I do like criticism because I think that's the only way you can get better as well. But I, there's a line between criticism and, and abuse and people obviously mean being nasty. But there are some people I think who are able to be um, respectful in how they engage. And so I'm, I'm willing to, to take what they have to say on board in that case. That's great. Well, the book is The End of Gender, Debunking the Myths About Sex and Identity in Our Society. So I, I know you cover nine main myths in this book. And, you know, to, to me, I, I'm familiar sort of with like a cursory understanding of these issues, but I didn't know like the in-depth of them. And one of the things that, that struck me, Deborah, was just how many kind of contradictions there were just among the nine myths. Like, uh, you know, so many of the ideas that people who are sort of holders of gender ideology have don't, don't make sense under basic scrutiny. So I, I think it's great that that your book lines us up. And, you know, for me, not 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 having a scientific background and not having a background at all in in biology and, and uh, sexology, it was really helpful just to break down the terms because it can be really confusing and therefore intimidating because you're like, I, I don't even have the first sense of what these people are talking about sometimes. Like when I first started learning about pronouns or the trans community, it's like, wow, there's a lot here and there's a lot of new words that I've never heard of. And this it's sort of a lot to unpack. So I really appreciate that your book sort of laid it all out in, in a sort of layman's uh, terms so, so that it's approachable uh, to anyone. But I thought maybe we could go through a couple of these myths and you could just sort of you know, explain sort of how, how, how they came about and, and what's, uh, what's wrong with them. So maybe first, uh, your first, the first myth that you, that you debunk here is that biological sex is a spectrum. We, we hear that a lot. First of all, I was wondering if you could just explain the difference quickly between sex and gender. Right. Well, thank thank you for that feedback because that, that was definitely one of my goals with the book was to, to write the science in a way that anyone can understand it if you have zero background in science or biology, because that's important. I think even the best scientific papers, if they are not written in a way that someone can understand it and can access it as well, because a lot of science is behind a paywall, so people can't even read the thing. Um, I felt that was important because otherwise the content is completely lost. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. In terms of uh, sex and gender, so biological sex is determined by gametes. So these are mature reproductive cells, so they're eggs and sperm. And then gender has to do with how we feel um, in relation to our biological sex. So whether we feel masculine or feminine. So if someone is transgender, they identify more as the opposite sex than their birth sex. And then gender expression is how we express our gender identity. So usually this is through clothing, mannerisms, um, our haircut, makeup, things like that. Uh, so then with regard to the myth of biological sex being a spectrum, so this is something that's been become more and more prominent, I would say, over probably the last year or so. And I think where it's coming from is wanting to um, argue in favor of rights for people who are intersex. So intersex people um, possess characteristics of both male and female. And I'm totally on board with that. Um, I think intersex people should be given legal protections, you know, equal rights. I think intersex children should be left alone and have bodily autonomy. Um, they should not be forced to undergo unwanted, potentially, surgeries, because that's another concern. Of, there's been a history of that for intersex children. Um, but I don't think we have to redefine biological sex or pretend that it is a spectrum when it's not. Most intersex people actually do want to live within the binary. They want to live as male as fem or female. They don't want to be 
something in between that or, or to collapse male and female into one construct. So um, that's a, that is a very unusual one when I start to see that idea become more prominent because it doesn't make sense because we have, again, eggs and sperm. There's nothing in between. So again, it's binary. It's interesting that, that this concept has kind of come up because I, I remember back when I was in university, there was this idea that sexual orientation was a spectrum that you could like that, that, that everyone was on the spectrum somewhere, uh, whether you were like a little bit gay or very gay. And, and they're they kind of pushing this idea of spectrum. And then and then now it's taken on the idea of gender and sex itself. So so the idea that there aren't just two genders, but there are hundreds or even potentially infinite n number of number of genders. Um, so I, just because because I, I don't want to come across as insensitive, and I'm trying to, you know, take on this issue in good faith. The, the, the idea that there are intersex people and there have been throughout human history and across cultures, that that, that, that is that is a fact of biology, correct? Yes. Yes. And, and, and so, so the idea that someone would be born with ambiguous genitalia or both male and female genitalia, and then, and then in that, that case, the person would still biologically be either male or female, correct? Yes, because intersex people, for the most part, still produce one or the other type of gamete. Um, it's very, very, very rare that someone has the capacity or the capability to produce both. And even in that case, they usually will only produce one or the other. It's not that they're able to produce both at the same time. But I find most people, when they are trying to argue in favor of biological sex being a spectrum, they don't even look at the data. They don't even look at these very, very rare case studies. They very much just say, we want X, you know, we want rights for this group. So this is what we're going to say. And you see, you know, so-called scientific experts arguing this as well. Because again, they're they're basically reverse engineering what they would like the social policy to be, and so then they're changing what science says in order to facilitate that. And is this this is just like a, a prevalent thing that's come up recently, Deborah? Because I I mean again I, I feel like this stuff wasn't really a, an issue five five years ago or so, but I have seen it recently. Like I think there's an example in Nature Journal that said that uh, the idea of two sexes is simplistic and that biologists are now think that there's a wider spectrum presumably that would exist in in all animals so 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 the idea that 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 really the idea of male and female are kind of like a social construct how, how long have you been seeing this this argument floated around um well i would say it started with the argument of gender as a social construct which it is not and so i argue about that myth in the book and then from there it went to gender is a spectrum, which it also is not. And I argue against that in the book. And then it's expanded now to biological sex as well. So it's been this progression. I would say this specific specific to biological sex being not binary, probably in the last two years really was when it really started to pick up. Um, because yeah, we saw that with Nature. Nature is one of the most prestigious scientific journals in the world. In 2018, there was that whole debacle with the Trump's memo saying that sex is defined at birth by genitalia and you know, people, all the media freaked out and not, well, not all, but I would say the majority of left-leaning media outlets got very upset about this and said that he was erasing trans people and intersex people. I do want to emphasize I do support transitioning in transgender adults because research does show that can be beneficial and also adults have the 
cognitive capacity to make life-altering decisions. But, um, you know, I talk more specifically in the book about this particular incident in 2018 and, and how really what the memo was saying was not actually that inaccurate, depending on how you define sex versus gender. Because what we saw as journalists were using the word gender when really what they should have been using was sex. So when you use the word gender and you say that gender is defined at birth and by genitalia, that's a much different meaning from saying that sex is determined uh, at birth and by genitalia. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that I'm curious to see what they're going to come up with next, but I'm really not. I really would like for all of this to stop, but uh, there's going to be more of it, I know for sure, because it's always about pushing boundaries. It's always about rewriting and redefining things because that's, that's the only way that um, people who are anti-science can really do away with the field. It's so, it's so interesting. I know you write about it in the book a lot that the idea, and conservatives get accused of it all the time of being anti-science. I, I think, sure, there's probably truth to that in the past, but, you know, I'm, I'm a conservative and I think that science is incredibly important and I, I don't really understand the argument. Usually when people say like, oh, the Harper government was anti-science, it's like a quibble over you know, funding or, you know, whether or not we have, how many questions we ask on a census form and stuff like that. And I don't think that they're very sort of substantive, but we have seen this new attack on science coming from the left. And, it, you know, it's, 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 it's really unfortunate. And I, I think it's, it's so important that we have people like yourself that, that, that call it out on both sides. Uh, I think, I think you, you probably do call it out uh, against conservatives when you see it as well. Yeah, I mean, I would still call myself a liberal. I'm certainly not far left, but this book is, um, I mean, I do call it both sides, but I would say predominantly it's about calling out left-leaning science denial because when it comes to gender and gender ideology, left-leaning science denial is definitely posing more of a threat right now in terms of influencing, like I mentioned, what kind of science is allowed to be done and what is allowed to be published and ultimately um, how we talk about these issues in our day-to-day -day lives. So uh, I think within the field of sex research in particular, because the vast majority of sex researchers are liberals, um, historically the field has been dealing with interference coming from the right. And that's not to say that all conservatives have an issue with sex research, but I think when it's your own side, it's a bit disorienting because um, my colleagues are not used to dealing with it coming from their own side or they don't see it as, as much of a threat. And, and there's an assumption there that it's not as serious and it's going to go away eventually. It's not, it's not going to actually gain any momentum, but that's definitely not the case. I mean, this is how we ended up where we are right now. And I, I definitely don't blame, I don't blame again, scientists for this because they're busy. They've got a million things going on and who, who could have predicted this? And I'm very blessed to be in a position where I can actually call this out because if I were still affiliated with a scientific organization or an academic institution, I definitely would have would have lost my job as a result of that. But I do I do wish that um, more scientists were willing to speak up about it because, I mean, it's not going to get better until they do. Yeah, it seems like these sort of ideology just keeps growing and growing and growing. Like, to be honest, the first time I ever really remember hearing about the pronouns debate was with Jordan Peterson and then what happened to Lindsay Shepard, who, who now works uh, with me at True North. And I, I kind of remember 
thinking, okay, it's sort of weird to use they. I, I, I don't, I can't, I can't really picture myself doing that just because it doesn't make sense, like grammatically, and it's confusing. But, but then when I started looking into, it, I realized, okay, it's not just about like using she to describe uh, a trans woman or or he, it, or they. It's like they have even more terms that are basically words I've never heard of before, like people that want to identify as G or, or J or something like that. And I've heard you say that you're you're happy to use people's preferred pronouns, which is just sort of like the polite thing to do. And I think most people agree, but is, do you draw a line? Like, would you use someone's pronoun if they if they asked you to refer to them as as G or, or J or one of these sort of words that, that didn't exist in the in English vocabulary like a couple of years ago? I, as a, I've thought about this, and I definitely have no issue using binary pronouns for a trans person who would identifies as the opposite sex. I don't have an issue with using they, although I do criticize the non-binary movement, and we can talk about that um, in terms of why I think there we need to have there should be a more clear conversation around the non-binary friend, if I can call it that. Um, but even for the the pronouns that you know are are maybe not he, she, or they, I will still use them. I think if that's what someone would like me to use, I do try to be respectful. Um, I think in many cases, though, when it starts moving to that direction, it's a bit more about trying to signal yourself as being different or an individual. Um, and it, it worries me when this sort of language is now being um, backed by, again, medical literature, scientific literature, when there's no science to back it up. Something like someone who's, someone who's a transgender but a binary sex, that's backed by research. You know, gender dysphoria is backed by research. Something like identifying as a third gender, I mean, there's so many beyond just non-binary. I mean, uh, beyond, say, I mean, the most common ones would probably be gender fluid, Gender queer. I generally don't like to use the word queer because I still consider that to be a slur against gay people. Um, agender, bigender. I mean, all of these terms have no basis in science. I think in many cases, it's uh, there are other issues going on with the individual. Um, you know, I've spoken before about how I think in many cases it's either gay people who have experienced homophobia and they are not comfortable with being gay, or there are in many cases young women who do not want to identify as female. And as, as critical as I've been with of feminism, I do think on some level sexism does exist. Um, I think it's an individual's choice what they choose to do with those experiences and whether it's going to be something that's going to shape you or something you say uh, is going to motivate you to just overcome obstacles in your life. But I do think, especially for young women who experience maybe negative um, interactions with people as a result of being female, they will identify now as non-binary or as a trans man because they don't want to experience that. They don't want to be female. Uh, and in other cases, I think it's people just trying to signal that they're progressive and it's considered ahead of the curve to some extent, or it's a way of, of fitting in with your peers. I guess if all your peers are identifying as a third gender, if you identify as male or female, that's considered antiquated. So, that, yeah, that's basically my thoughts on that. Yeah, it's sort of just a, a trendy sort of way to signal that you're interesting and different and 
woke or something like that. All right, let's let's get into your criticism about non-binary. I, I uh, it sort of reminds me a little bit of in uh, Douglas Murray's latest book, The Madness of Crowds. He talks about some of the tensions within the LGBTQ community and how they don't necessarily have a lot in common. And I think that you picked up on that and kind of went a lot deeper uh, with some of the kind of inherent contradictions, like the idea that being trans would be transitioning from male to female, which kind of implies that there's just two genders, but then bringing in this whole concept of being non-binary and, and being a spectrum and you can be male one day and female the next, and it just depends on, on your feelings. It sort, sort of undermines the whole idea of, of being trans or transitioning. Maybe you can expand on that a little more. Sure, I mean, I absolutely love Douglas Murray. I think he's amazing. Um, so with this tension you see with tra trans people who are uh, who have transitioned to a binary sex, so they go from one to the other, they will say, I don't have much in common with people who identify as non-binary because they, are, they aren't the same. But um, I think part of also what it is with this non-binary movement is it's for people to get some sort of... Um, social currency in terms of victimization or some sort of oppression. Um, so they will lump themselves into the trans community. And we see this happening more and more now. When, when people refer to trans, it's not just about people who have transitioned to a binary sex. It's now beginning to include non-binary people, gender non-conforming people. And it, they're not the same. These are two different groups. I mean, the, the underlying ideologies is very different. And so, like you're saying, I mean, and I say this in the book, if gender is fluid and can change throughout the day or within the hour, as some people claim it does for them, how is that not an argument against transitioning? Because for someone who is unhappy with their birth sex, why not? Why can they not then be told, just wait it out until you feel differently, which I don't agree with. I do think, like I said, transitioning can be helpful for adults. Um, and also for non-binary people, in many cases, they don't, when they're, they're quote unquote transition, they don't really do much besides take on new pronouns and maybe change their haircut and clothing. It's not like for someone who's say transgender and transitioning to a binary sex where they will undergo medical interventions. Um, it's not something like there's definitely more of um, an investment there. And I think also a, a, an emotional investment in terms of you are, t you are now living as the opposite sex. This is not something like non-binary people. It just seems like it's like a fun thing that they're doing when you when you hear them talk about it. And I find that I'm not transgender, but I would find that I think disrespectful for someone who has transitioned and, and undergone, you know, in some cases, very, a very challenging path. So yeah, I, there, there's definitely more of a tension within the community. And, and I think people are rightful to be skeptical of it because now if you criticize the non-binary movement, you get called transphobic. And I think this has nothing to do with trans people. Well, yeah, it's interesting because obviously if, if you are trans or if you're intersex and then decide to transition, it's a huge life-changing, all-encompassing thing. Um, and so then to see someone else who's sort of flippant about it and like it's like a fun trend, I mean, it's like good for them to have that attitude towards it, but at the same time, I, I can totally see how it how it is disrespectful. Well, let's get into what I thought was the sort of meat of the book. That my my favorite chapter, anyway, was about um, children 
and, uh, with gender dysphoria and whether or not they should transition. And so I, I think you said in the book that you once supported uh, transitioning for children. I think based on the logic that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if, you, if you have a child who knows at an early age that they wanna be the other sex or the other gender, I should say, um, that allowing them to go through puberty is irreversible and, and that uh, it, it can stop them from becoming who they want to be, essentially. So if you, if you transition pre-puberty, then that would prevent that, them from having to go through the awkward stage of going through puberty in what they think is the wrong the wrong body or the wrong sex. Um, but that you, you change your mind about that. Maybe you can explain that better than I can. But, but what, what, what is your, what is your uh, take on, on children and, and transitioning? Right. So I did, I used to believe that um, early transitioning was the best way forward for kids with gender dysphoria because it superficially made sense to me that if you have this child who is re really struggling, um, why wouldn't you want to help them in that way? And especially to undergo um, medical interventions that would help prevent um, them having changes to their body that would be otherwise irreversible and it would make it more difficult for them to live as the opposite sex. So that was my superficial understanding. And then once I started reading the research literature, I realized that, uh, again, you know, all these, the vast majority of these children are going to desist. They're not, no longer going to be gender dysphoric by puberty. Usually what happens is they grow comfortable in their body. They start having crushes on their peers and they, they actually are quite happy. Um, so for the kids who persist, I do think they should be allowed to begin on, um, you know, whatever interventions are seen as appropriate for them. I don't do clinical work anymore. I don't work with these children, but I think a good clinician would say um, that that would be an appropriate course. However, it's next to impossible nowadays for clinicians to do their jobs properly in that way in, in terms of assessing whether transitioning will be beneficial for a child who has reached puberty. Um, I would say even in the case of adults, I think it's extremely difficult for clinicians to even um, do a proper assessment um, for, for people with gender dysphoria who are you know, well into an age where they can make these kinds of decisions um, because often there are other issues going on um, that can lead to them feeling unhappy about their gender. But with regard to uh, the children and, and my change in my understanding, so the other thing is people will often say that a social transition is harmless and that it's easily reversible and all you're doing is letting the kid wear whatever clothes they want, play with the toys they want. That's not true because you are actually treating that child as though they are the opposite sex. I am totally in favor in parents of parents letting their kids play with whatever toys they want and having friends of the opposite sex and being, you know, gender nonconforming, that doesn't require them to live as the opposite sex because a social transition is associated with persistence. It's associated with going on and taking puberty blockers. Puberty blockers are associated with cross-sex hormones, you know, going on down the line. So it, it's not true. It's not factually accurate to say that a social transition is is easy to reverse or that it's it's harmless because, I mean, this is what parents are being told. I don't blame them for obviously believing the professionals who are telling them this, but if you actually sit and read the studies, and I document all of this, and I have all of the citations in the book, um, it's, it's just not true. 
Well, it, it, again, it's it's just really interesting because I mean you're dealing with little kids, right? So they don't they don't know what they're going to feel three four years down the road. They can't kind of wrap their head around the idea of like how this could affect their body going forward, whether it affects their ability to have children or their ability to change their mind. That's when it gets like really dicey. And I think a lot of parents out there are rightfully concerned that it is an ideology that's 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 being pushed. Maybe if you can help break down the numbers a little bit, like just how prevalent is this sort of phenomenon? I'm talking about transgenderism. Do, do we do we know like what percentage of people uh, fall into this category? Well, in terms of the adult population in the U.S., um, six in a thousand people identify as transgender. So this is a number that has doubled in the last ten years. With regards to children, so previously referrals to gender clinics have been predominantly for uh, boys, so little boys who are very feminine, but there's been a switch now, and it's predominantly now uh, for children born female. We could talk a bit about rapid onset gender dysphoria as well, because that's another phenomenon that is really worrisome to me, because you do, we are seeing this huge influx of young women who are very suddenly wanting to transition to male or a third gender, um, when in many cases their issues are not, that have nothing to do with gender. And, and also with um, with regards to the issue of, of clinicians not being able to do their job, here in Canada we have Bill C-8 that criminalizes any therapeutic interventions that do not facilitate early transitioning. So essentially any child who is gender dysphoric or at all uncomfortable in their body, if they go to a, a mental health professional, they will be given, the, they'll be facilitated in transitioning. There's no alternative there. Um, who wants to face potentially five years in prison for doing doing good clinical work? I mean, I've, I've very few people are going to take that risk, I think, if anyone. So um, that's only going to add to these numbers. So maybe you can break down that bill a little bit, because I think maybe most people aren't too familiar with it, but the idea is to ban conversion therapy. Is that right? Right. Well, they're mass, so they're calling it conversion therapy. I do not support any therapeutic events, uh, interventions that seek to change sexual orientation. So conversion therapy used to mean attempts to change someone's sexual orientation, and that does not work because, as I write in the book, sexual orientation is biological. It cannot be changed. It's immutable. Uh, gender identity is not the same as sexual orientation because, especially for young children, the way they feel about their gender can change with their development. So it's not appropriate to say that, um, it, not to, to call any therapeutic attempts at reconciling one's gender or the way a person, a child feels in their birth sex, to call that conversion therapy because it's not the same. But I think it's it's very clever marketing on the part of these activists because they know they know that most people are not in favor of conversion therapy for sexual orientation. It's unethical, and so they've tacked on the gender identity aspect of it to to this broader idea. And so, I mean, even in in my work, people when they see that I am opposed to conversion, so-called conversion therapy for gender identity, they are, they're a bit taken aback because to them that's hateful. And then once you explain to them, no, it's not the same as sexual orientation. And in fact, what you see happening, so for these kids who are gender dysphoric, who identify more as the opposite sex, if they are facilitated in transitioning, 
they, so as I mentioned, most of these kids would grow up to be gay if they transition. So if you have a little boy who is very feminine, who is going to grow up to be attracted to men, if he transitions to female, when she grow up, grows up, she's going to appear to be a straight woman because she's going to be a woman attracted to men. So the really hypocritical and unfortunate thing is, is essentially this ban is conversion therapy in my mind, because you are taking these children and you're making them straight by putting them, them down a course of transitioning. They're going to look heterosexual in adulthood. Um, but I, I don't think, I don't think the politicians have thought about this. I don't think they necessarily care. I think it's really just about what seems to be the quote unquote right thing to say in this climate. So the children will pay a price for that, unfortunately. It's so so sad that that little kids have to go through this. Just to pick up on something that you said, though, so your your sort of scientific opinion is that sexual orientation is biological. So that would be like like the, the nurture nature debate. It's it's entirely based on nature. Like Lady Gaga, I was born this way, kind of thing. And so you would oppose any any kind of therapy that someone would go to to try to try to. To, to change that, 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 that it's totally immutable, that you can't, that you can't change it. What, what about someone though, who was like bisexual or, or someone who was gay, but didn't want to be gay? I mean, you, you would oppose like, like therapy for, 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 for them, even as an adult or just for children? Well, see, this is the thing I, I get, I don't like the idea of the government coming in and telling people what they, especially adults telling them what they can or can't do. I, I would say in my understanding of the scientific research and you know chapter four of the book is dedicated to this um that sexual orientation cannot be changed so if someone is uncomfortable with being gay or bisexual i would say the best way for them would be maybe to speak to a, a therapist about why they're uncomfortable about that and maybe find ways of of learning to accept that and appreciate that about themselves and and not feel like they have to change that um, I mean, I understand, and I write in the book about how I grew up in the gay community, and I, I see, I still see the the discrimination that gay people face. But uh, you know, it's one of those things. It's just, it's not, it's not effective. You, if you do, there are some um, practitioners who do still practice conversion therapy for sexual orientation, which makes me very, very uncomfortable. Um, I would just really advise against going down in that direction because it's it's not going to work. I think it will cause more harm than good. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I would I would just sort of feel uncomfortable with the government saying you can or cannot have this kind of therapy if if that's what you want. I mean, if say say you were bisexual and you you were attracted to both, you were a man who was attracted to both men and women, but you chose that you wanted to have a traditional family and and be a father and stuff like you know, you could, you could go to therapy to help you. And that, that's not something that the government should interject with. But then the idea that the same logic is applied to trans children who are clearly going through something, a major, you know, life issue. It, it just seems crazy that the government would tell you that you cannot engage in, in therapy without going down the path of transitioning, which is, is what I understand is the case now. Right. And I mean, in terms of bans for conversion therapy for sexual orientation for children, I mean, I think I have less of an issue if the government were to do that because one, it is more based in science and also because young children especially can't necessarily advocate for themselves. So if they do have a parent say, I mean, parents, I think are quite intuitive. They get a sense if they have a gender non-conforming child, there's a chance that child's going to grow up to be gay. And that bothers some parents. And so they will, you know, this is 
we've seen this in the past where parents will take their kids to these practitioners to try and convert them to be more gender conforming and to be straight, which I do not agree with. I always want to emphasize I don't agree with that. But I, I have less, it makes me less uncomfortable. I have less of an issue if, say, there were policy in place to prevent that from happening because kids can't, they can't, you know, if, if a parent makes that decision for them, they really are, um, don't have much of recourse. Um, but I think as, as, you know, for adults, it's a little bit more concerning to me. And also with especially Bill C-8, it's not scientific. I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Um, scientists should be consulted on this, um, not, not activists. Absolutely. So yeah, you, you have a situation where a lot of parents are really terrified because they might have a child who is, is gender nonconforming, like you say, or maybe you, just some of their friends, like you, you talk about in your book, uh, about, uh, and you just brought it up too, about, uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria and how it can happen. I mean, I know someone who, the, the child goes to a small private school and like half the kids in the class identify as, as you know, by non-binary or they're transitioning or they're trans. And it's like, how, how can you look at that situation and not see it as a, the environment that, that the child is in where, where they're being encouraged to explore this or, or being led down that path uh, by someone who is ideological. Um, and so parents are, are stuck in this position where they just don't know what to do. Is, is that something that you've, you've sort of encountered? And maybe you can speak to, to that to, to concern parents who obviously love their children and want the best for them, but worry about an ideology that, that could potentially have terrible impact on the rest of their life. I've had so many parents reach out to me about this issue, both before the book came out and since the book has come out. Since the book has come out, it, I've been blown away by the number of parents and family members who have reached out to me. It's really, really sad. I, you know, I really feel for them because they are in a, a position where they really are at a loss because they're, if they are skeptical of their child wanting to transition, they're called all kinds of hateful names. Now we see, you know, legal policy is in favor of, of allowing the child to, to basically transition. And, um, I mean, I, I know I know the truth is going to come out. I know what's around the corner. It's going to be devastating. And um, it's difficult for me to... I find of the parents that I talk to, some of them are very much aware of this and they're, they're skeptical, rightfully. And there are other parents who go along with it. They're skeptical, but they also feel they don't have a choice. And so that chapter that you mentioned, chapter five, which is about gender transitioning children, I document, you know, all the advice that I would give to parents because I've had parents reach out to me sometimes when I would, when I used to do speaking engagements, they would come up and ask me questions at the end. And it's very difficult. I, I don't feel it's appropriate for me to tell a parent what they should or shouldn't do with their particular child, because, you know, in these cases, I've never met the child. I don't know the parents. And I also know that parenting decisions are very personal. But um, yeah, in the book, I, I do go through, you know, there are a number of things that activist groups will say or even medical professionals will say to try to sway a parent in one direction or another. Um, things like saying your child is at a higher risk of suicide or they will commit suicide if they don't transition, saying that this is due to greater social acceptance, which really doesn't make sense because why is it we're seeing this predominantly in adolescent girls who are not gender nonconforming for the most part? Most of them are very female typical up until even days before they announced that they want to transition. So yeah, that, that, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's, that's been my take on it when I step back a bit. 
Well, it's it's really interesting because I, I think you're getting at that there's, I, I mean, obviously, you know, when you're going through puberty, when a child's going through puberty, their body's changing, it's confusing, and they feel uncomfortable. And so if you, if you take a, a little girl who's feeling uncomfortable with, with her, her puberty, and then at the same time, she's socially awkward, or perhaps she's on the autism spectrum somehow, it's like the, the, these are all things that are pushing uh, someone towards wanting to go down that route of being trans. But it's like, you know, what 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 happens a couple of years later when they grow out of it, and and it, it's irreversible. So maybe we can talk a little bit about some of those cases that we're now seeing, uh, where someone has transitioned and now they want to go back and detransition, or they experience regret. Is how prevalent is that? We don't yet know the numbers in terms of this newer wave. Um, the more, in terms of what has been documented in research, about two percent of people uh, detransition. But again, this the, the data for that study were collected years ago, so it's it doesn't really apply to the young women that and that we're seeing right now who are rushing to transition. But I, I definitely think it's going to be higher than 2%. We're seeing, you know, even in the UK, hundreds and hundreds of these girls are coming out in one county alone. And in a lot of cases, they're saying, I am on the autism spectrum. I'm lesbian. I just feel different. I don't feel like I'm a typical girl. You know, in many cases, they aren't extremely feminine. So they believe that means that they must really be a man. Um, and as you're saying, you know, puberty brings about these changes. And for some of these girls, even the fact that they get periods, they don't like the fact that they get a period every month. And so they think that means they must be a man. And, you know, I say in the book very clearly, like, there are no woman likes getting her period. That's just an inherent part of being a woman. That doesn't mean you're not a woman. And it doesn't mean that it's not amazing to be women. And and I, I just, I can't believe that no one is saying this to these these girls or you know, developing breasts. The double mastectomies are becoming so common now for for young women who uh, are identifying as male or who identify as a third gender. And I think it's you know, I, my breasts are small, but of my girlfriends who have larger breasts, they will tell me that they they hated their breasts when they first started developing. That it was very uncomfortable. That it was something that they had to adjust to. And I I you know once. It's not as simple as having the surgery and then simply getting um, implants later if that's what you decide. It's not the same. They sell it as though it's the same. They, they tell the parents it's the same. It's easily reversible. It's not the same. And, and as for these young women who are detransitioners, um, so they were born female, they identified as male or third gender, and now they've gone back to, to identifying as female. They will say, I wish that medical professionals had asked me these questions. I wish they had not taken what I had said at face value. In some cases, these girls are getting prescriptions for testosterone after one one-hour appointment. They don't, the, you know, the practitioners do not do a proper assessment. They don't do any sort of history. It's just, um, it's a mess. It's really a mess. And, and I really feel for these girls. And why, why aren't they get? getting proper assessments? Is it because the ideology is so prevalent that people who, by the time a child comes in to, to talk to a, a you know, presumably, you know, a trained professional, um, that, that, that it's just assumed that they are a trans person? Or why, why, why aren't they getting the right advice here? Because even the doctors believe that if they don't facilitate transitioning right away, that their patient is going to commit suicide. They, they've they've been intimidated, and I think to some extent, 
misled by activist groups that really are pushing this narrative. And this is not to say that, you know, I don't think, I do believe gender dysphoria is a, you know, a legitimate condition. And, and I have a lot of empathy for people who are struggling with their gender. I think it should be taken seriously, but I don't think the, the, response to that is to go completely in this opposite direction because gatekeeping has been an issue in the past for trans people where they can't get access to the interventions and the care that they need and deserve. But now we've gone so far in the opposite direction where it's very much whatever someone says goes. And in many cases, this is not going to be the best case as we're the best outcome as we're already seeing for these individuals. You're right. It seems like it's sort of coming from a place of, of kindness and trying to accommodate people that are different. But, it, it, you know, it definitely seems like the, the spectrum has swung so far. It's so easy to transition. It's so easy to change your gender. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, Lauren Southern officially changed her gender. All she had to do was go into a doctor's office and claim that she wanted to be a boy. And then that it was that it was that easy. It was like she did it in an afternoon. And I mean, obviously she's an adult, but um, one of the things you talked about in your book as well, and you just brought it up with suicide, is is that that's something that's sort of almost being used to threaten parents. Like, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't you rather have a happy uh, transgender little girl than a dead boy? Which to me is like, as a parent, it's like the most evil thing you can say to a parent, that kind of guilt, like as if a parent doesn't care already. And, and, and that that's something that they would want, like no parent wants anything like that for, for their child. But what, what is what is the data surrounding suicide? Is it something that's that's really a problem in the trans community? Uh, well, there is one statistic, uh, the 41% statistic of saying that trans adults, 41% of trans adults have attempted suicide, um, which I think we should take seriously. I mean, there, there are legitimate concerns there. Um, but I, I don't think especially when it comes to the issue of whether children should be transitioning or not, it's not appropriate to take a statistic that pertains to adults and to apply that to children. Uh, that particular study, the researchers also mentioned how um, they did not ask whether the individual was experiencing issues with their gender at the time of their suicide attempt. So we don't even know that um, their suicide attempt had anything to do with gender dysphoria. Um, there's also, you know, likelihood that there was comorbidity. We don't know, but there, you know, one study showed that as many as 60% of people with gender dysphoria have some other psychiatric comorbidity. Um, I understand why people don't want to talk about these things because then it can be used in some cases for people to dismiss the concerns of someone who is, who has gender dysphoria to say this person is just mentally ill or they don't know what they're talking about. I don't agree with that. But I do think we have to, again, look at this from a fact-based perspective, because if someone is struggling with something else and it's being expressed as gender, but it's not actually about their gender, well, if they transition, they're not going to feel better after. It's not going to take care of whatever it is that they're struggling with. And um, so, yeah, definitely that suicide narrative is being used to emotionally blackmail parents. I don't blame the parents who who allow their child to transition as a result of being told that, because I think that's what any parent would do. Um, but it's that's definitely been a very powerful, I think, tool in terms of why why this has become so prevalent. And, and also that mental health professionals and doctors don't want to be called transphobic because they have to worry about that too. They have to worry about potentially losing their license if they don't facilitate this. But they also have to worry about activists 
groups going after them and, and saying that they're hateful and transphobic. Um, it's not a good look for them either. So, uh, it, it, yeah, it's just it's just completely inappropriate. The fact that children, I feel they're being used in this way to further a particular agenda. Well, and it's like a minefield trying to navigate it, because, again, most people, most people out there are just, you know, decent people. They want to do the right thing. They don't want anyone to suffer. They want equal rights and they want everyone to be protected and everyone to feel included. But then, you know, at some point it's like, well, wait a minute. I mean, this this is just not right. And and like you, you say, for both uh, little girls and little boys that want to transition at that moment, you know, if, if, if you just wait, that, that, that phase might change. It might turn out to be, like you said, uh, that I think, I think you said that most males who want to transition, if they don't, they just end up kind of becoming comfortable and becoming gay men. So the idea of forcing them to transition would be sort of a, a slight against gay men or, or, or saying that it's not okay to be gay. So you see a homophobia come into that as well. Um, are, are there any other sort of um, clashes that you see between these different groups or is that sort of the main one? Mm, I would I want to add actually with regards to gay men, I've had so many gay men reach out to me over the years saying that they thought about transitioning and they read an article or they saw a video of me talking and they decided to wait and now they're happy that they did because they're happy as gay men and they're out to everyone in their life. And so that means a lot to me when I hear that because it it gives me some reassurance that I'm doing the right thing because I do try to to step back every once in a while and ask myself, am I still making sense? You know, I obviously don't want to make life more difficult for for the trans community or for anyone who is experiencing gender dysphoria. Um, but in terms of that tension, I mean, I, I'm always amazed when I see how shall I say this? Gay men who are you know very out, open about being gay, but they will defend childhood transitioning. Um, there are a number of public figures who have done this, and I just think, uh, I don't know if they realize what they're doing or how harmful it is. I think in many cases, maybe these individuals have forgotten how much they are like these kids, because for many, um, especially boys with gender dysphoria, when they grow up, they forget. Like Research has shown that they will forget that they once wanted to be girls when they were young. So maybe that's it, I think, at, at best. But, uh, you know, I have a line in the book talking about how this I'm amazed because it is leading to essentially the extermination of gay children. And it's like these gay adults don't seem to have a problem with that. They, I don't think they represent most in the gay community because I have I have many people, trans adults and gay adults who reach out to me saying they agree with me. But it's at the end of the day, I think it comes down to individuals who are really looking to build their own platforms and get social accolades and move their career forward. and so. They really don't care at the end of the day who gets pushed under the bus as a result. Yeah, it'll be interesting to sort of keep an eye on the LGBT. I, I don't know what it feels like the letters are constantly changing or they're always adding new ones or depending on whether you're reading something that's Canadian or American, they have like different letters at the end. But the, the, the sort of tensions between them, because I, I know you talk a little bit in the book about um, feminism and how sort of there's a, a, a big divide between uh, you know, whether or not a trans, uh, someone who transitions to become a woman can actually be a woman. Obviously, biologically, they can't, but then, you know, they're able to. You can't even say spaces. that now, though. Okay, well, I, I, I mean, I, 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 I would, you, I wouldn't no, be I afraid of it. But yeah, I, I, get, I get that, like, a lot of people get canceled just for making that very basic statement that 
I mean, even you know, biologically, it's almost like a, a an obvious statement, but it's it's politically controversial these days. But I think one of the things that I, I would be concerned about, and this is sort of starting to happen more and more, where you see a trans person in a woman's locker room. And it's just sort of weird. And a lot of women feel uncomfortable about it, but they're afraid to speak out. And it's like, you know, the idea that we have women only spaces supposed to be to protect women, you know, if you're if you're changing in after after going to the gym or something like that. Um, and, and a concern could be especially if there's little little girls in there. Uh, but but then I think there's another issue, Deborah, which is uh, sports and, and, and women who, you know, want to play like competitive soccer. Um, but they have to compete against someone who is biologically male, you know, who's transitioned. And one of the things I think was interesting was supposed to be the Tokyo Olympics coming up. They, they had a, a new statement, a new policy on transgender athletes where they were under, under some circumstances going to be able to compete. And I, th I think that that would have been pretty jarring for the public to see. And, and it would have brought this debate much more into the forefront. But of course, those Olympics got uh, postponed or canceled. But um, maybe you can just quickly address the issue of um, transgender athletes and the sort of tr uh, the the tension between feminists and trans trans people. Right. So I have that chapter talking about whether uh, trans women are no different from women who are born women, and I do in the chapter talk about differences. But I I do want to emphasize that I don't think those differences should be used to hold back trans rights. I don't think they should be used to discriminate against trans people or trans women. But in some cases, no, these differences are important. Like, as you're mentioning in competitive sports or, you know, say I love mixed martial arts, if they can have serious consequences for competitors if, if we overlook these differences. It can feel, I mean, even when I talk about this issue, I feel it, it can be seen as insensitive because it's as though we are saying to a trans person who they really are or how they should be seen, and that's not my intention. Um, but again, I'm coming from a scientific perspective and saying, if we ignore these differences, and I think most in the public know that these differences exist, to shut that down and pretend that they don't exist, it, you lose credibility and it alienates people from the cause of wanting to advocate for trans rights and for equality. So with regards to sports, I mean, it is so contentious, like you're saying, those guidelines for the Olympics, they were at last reported still basically deciding what they were going to be because I guess it's so difficult to come to an agreement because of, of how how controversial it is. And I feel like I, I feel for them because I think no matter what they do, people are someone is going to get upset. Some group somewhere is going to get upset and say either you didn't do enough or you, you've gone too far. Um, the tension between feminists and trans activists. So it depends what kind of feminist, because. Um, radical feminists are very skeptical of this idea that uh, someone who is trans should be considered the opposite sex. So I'm not a radical feminist. I don't want to speak for them. But in my understanding, someone who is born male and identifies as female can never be female. They will always be male, which would be correct from a from a biologically speaking standpoint. I don't have an issue referring to a trans woman as a woman or using, you know, she calling her she using the name she'd like me to use but again I there are differences there um whereas say for, for radical feminists they they very much say no trans women are not women so I don't agree with them in that um whereas say Sorry, liberal I, feminists I think they're kind say, of like a different kind of woman goes, like 
you, you can like it, it, it's just hard to say like it's almost like a case-by-case -case basis but there's some men that you could just tell their men no you know no matter what they do they're big they, they you know they have broad shoulders and just you know for someone like that it's it, it's hard to say okay that that person's going to be a woman be, just because they transition and i know obviously it's, it's really difficult but i i just have a hard time kind of wrapping my head around the idea that that someone who could be a large male wanting to compete against women in sports so that's something that we should that we should just say okay that's that's fine well i would say, i mean i understand where the the concern is coming from for people who say it should be fair because um you know i don't necessarily fault default an individual who may be physically larger who may look a certain way because in you know in some cases maybe they they can't help that but I guess it's because if we were to say you cannot compete with women, then we're essentially telling them again who they are and that they aren't really who they say they are. But the other side of that, which which you know I argue in the book, is that it's not fair, and it's not fair for for especially in competitive sports for women who, in some cases, have been working their entire lives for these opportunities, and and they're basically being told that they should just suck it up and work harder. That's uh, how can you how can you say that to somebody? So, I mean, I feel this is one issue where people are a little bit more willing to be vocal. You know, they'll be quiet about talking about women's spaces or transitioning in children or gender neutral language. But sports is one area where people get very, very upset and they say that is they have a problem with this. So I say if you have a problem with it, it's good to speak up about it. And I think that guidelines should be taken into account. You know, I get that for trans people. Sport is not just about the competitive aspect and, and about it being a meritocracy, but it's also about that sense of community. And people, you know, in some cases just want to be able to go out and have fun and, and feel like they're being recognized as they would like to be recognized and just get on with their business. I think that's the average trans person. When you take it to the level of competitive sports and it's becoming a political statement, that's a little bit different. But my, my general approach is that it really depends on what realm we're speaking of. You know, I think sports are different from prison and that should be different from say bathrooms or, um, you know, we, I also talk about sexual preferences and our sexual preferences considered transphobic nowadays. So, um, yeah, I, I just I just think people should be less afraid to talk about this more broadly because I, I feel like everyone is is stepping is is just afraid of being targeted next for saying the wrong thing and everyone is terrified. And again, if you're if you're coming from a fact based perspective, a lot of people are going to agree with you and they're going to tell you that they agree with you. Uh, well, absolutely. Well, uh, you're definitely one of the people that do speak out about it. And I think your book helps provide clarity because, again, it's 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 not only is it a confusing issue because of all the terminology and the different sort of new words that are a lot of them are really ideological, uh, but it's also new and, and it's not something that people were even exposed to a couple of years ago. So a lot of people who might be intimidated by the issue, I think they could read your book and and and, and learn a lot about it. I'll just ask you one final question, Deborah, on, on the topic of your book. What, what, what do you see happening down the road? I mean, with kids transitioning or being pushed towards it and, and, and sort of, you know, scientists being afraid of, of, of putting out factual information. And so because of that, it's more inundated with ideology and, and, and again, just this chill of cancel culture and political correctness. Like, where, where are we headed and, and what, what do you predict uh, will happen in the next five years? 
I think there's going to be a huge wave of children detransitioning. It's going to be really awful. And I see a lot of the people who are pushing this right now playing dumb and saying, oh, we had no idea this was going to happen. This is so terrible. Who could have predicted this when those of us who are calling it out are being called by them uh, transphobic? We're being called hateful and bigoted. So I really hope anyone that's been following this conversation hold those people accountable when that happens because they're going to deflect the blame and, and pretend as though there was no indication that this was, was coming. Um, I think for you know how children are being targeted with education, they're being taught these ideas in their curriculum, they're going to be extremely confused as they get older because a lot of the ideas they're being told don't make any sense. There's something very basic like, say, in Ontario, the sex ed curriculum. And I am in favor of comprehensive sex ed. I always want to make sure that I'm clear about that. My issue is when the gender ideology starts coming in. Comprehensive sex ed is actually more uh, effective than abstinence-only sex education in terms of preventing um, unwanted pregnancy. And, and children are not children. Not children. I take that back. But young adults are more likely to use protection and make better decisions about their sexual health with comprehensive sex ed but the gender ideology has no business being there and you know they're the kids are being taught things like sexual orientation and gender identity gender expression and anatomy have nothing to do with one another um and that like you were saying sexual orientation is a spectrum it's fluid all these nonsensical ideas so as these kids get older they're going to they're not going to have any sort of realistic understanding of the world around them or how to relate to other people because everything they've been told is factually inaccurate. I have a chapter in the book dedicated to sex differences and sex and dating. And I think this is this is going to be even bigger of a problem because young people especially have are, are so confused when it comes to if they're straight interacting with the opposite sex and how a, a lot of this ideology is quite damaging, I think, in terms of um, how we relate to each other, both not just in the bedroom, but just more broadly. And also, I, th I think science as a whole is, is has been taken hostage. And that's only going to get worse because we see more and more activism is just destroying these disciplines. All right. Well, I, I don't want to keep you much longer. I've got one, one final question. What, do, do you have any advice for parents? So say, you know, your child is going through the sex education. And I, I agree with you that, that it's, it's more important to have sexual education than allowing kids to kind of go find their own knowledge out on the internet or wherever where it might not be uh, very accurate. It's, it's, it's better to teach them in class, but obviously it needs to be based on, on fact and not on ideology. Uh, so, you know, if, if, if a child is being taught something in school, like, you know, the idea that the, the that there's this gender unicorn that's coming from the UK schools where they're teaching you that you can be any number of, of children or uh, CBC Kids had had a story that was talking about how J.K. Rowling was tra tra uh, transphobic. I mean, when when the ideology seeps into to, to teaching little kids, as, as a parent, like what what can you do if if you see that happening to your child in their school? I would say number one, be aware, because in a lot of cases, the parents don't even know. Oh, this is what the kids are being taught. Sometimes it's not formally documented because teachers, from my understanding, do have some wiggle room in terms of, terms of what they actually do want to teach the kids. So be aware. Um, and if it comes down to it, don't feel bad about taking your kids out of those classes, keeping them home. I've had colleagues do that. Um, another one of the reasons I wrote the book is to offer parents a resource in terms of the scientific studies showing exactly why these ideas are false. So something like 
uh, genders a spectrum, if you go to the administration and say this is not fact-based, they'll pull up materials from activist groups and say, yes, it is, because look, at this is what you know they say is, is the newest science, quote-unquote, so this is why we're teaching this. So as a parent, you can take the studies in, the, in my book and say, no, this is, this is why what you're teaching the kids is false, because otherwise you really have no way of combating it, because they'll just say, well, the newest science shows this, so this is, this is what we're going with. Well, maybe they can pick up a copy of your book and, and bring that into the uh, into the schools if, if they need to push back. Uh, Dr. Deverso, <laughs> it's been such a pleasure having you on. Uh, maybe let our, let our viewers know where they can find you, where they can read your stuff, and uh, where, where to go. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Deborah So, and I'm on Instagram at Dr. Deborah W. So. I write a monthly column for the Globe and Mail. Um, if you want to see all the different myths uh, in the end of gender, you can go to my website, which is drdebrasso.com slash book, and you can get the end of gender on Amazon, Indigo, Barnes & Noble. Great. Well, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining the True North Speaker Series. Thank you so much for having me.